This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Here on the program, one of our very favorite shows to produce has been the monthly news roundup. In the week closest to the end of the month, we gather together with experts from a variety of fields and we talk about science and research and discovery. And we talk about these things in other people's fields. We do this because you don't have to be an expert in what other people do to appreciate what they do. But people who are masters of their own scientific craft tend to see the world in such a way that can help us better appreciate the wide world of science. It's been a while since we've gathered in this way, though. Like so many other things, the Roundup was a casualty of the COVID-19 pandemic, chiefly because we typically had at least a few of our guests in studio with us. And it took us a while, but we're ready to start it up again. And we're doing it socially distanced with a group of guests who are all veterans of the program and people who I absolutely love. Joining us today is Danielle Lemon. They first joined us back in June of 2019 to talk about the diversity of El Nino events worldwide and have been a guest several times on the Roundup. Danielle, welcome back. It's great to be here. Thanks, Matt. Morella Meyerfica also first joined us in 2019 to talk about her team's work to genetically engineer a mouse that is dependent on niacin, and she's become one of our favorite Roundup guests, calling in from Utah State University. Morella Meyerfica, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And from the University of Utah, where she is Director of Marketing and Communications at the David Eccles School of Business and a newly minted Doctor of Educational Leadership and Policy, is another longtime friend of the program and immense science buff, Sheena McFarland. Sheena, thanks for coming back to join us. So excited as always to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start today, guys, as we often do on the Roundup in space, where researchers have recently announced that the closest cluster of stars to our solar system is very quickly dying. And by very quickly, I mean it's going to happen in the next 30 million years, give or take. This is a very short time frame, galactically speaking, a blink of an eye. How should we be looking at this new information? Um, I thought it was really interesting, as I do find so many things astronomy-related interesting, knowing that there's kind of a funeral date, even though we don't have an exact day and time that this might happen, may very well give scientists some insight into how these clusters do disintegrate and what does that look like so they can maybe apply that knowledge elsewhere in the galaxy and wider universe. And it just seems darn fortunate that it is happening so close to us. This is the star cluster that is closest to Earth out of many, many star clusters out there. Absolutely. And what I think we often find is that we'll create a computer model and then watch it happen in real time, 30 million years real time, but still, and be able to adjust that computer model going, oh, actually this other thing happened or we didn't anticipate this happening. And now we have new knowledge about how these structures work or how these interactions interplay with one another. And I think that's always a really fascinating aspect of these moments. This cluster once had about 1,200 solar masses, but it's losing long tails of stars, and now it has about 300 stars left. And this is a story of competing gravities. The cluster has gravity, but it's no match in the long term for the draw of the Milky Way, which is pulling stars away little by little. This is why I love space science. It lends itself to metaphors so well. This feels sad to me. I know I probably shouldn't do that, but Did you guys get the same sort of sense when you read the story? Yeah, there's a lot of heartbreak 
in the story of a star cluster because it's a star-crossed story. So basically, the idea with star clusters is that they're born, but that a bunch of things try to tear them apart. So you have supernova explosions, you have large clouds of gas that pass near the cluster and take stars out of it. The stars themselves will also kind of push and pull each other and may end up shooting one out. Then there's the gravitational pull of the Milky Way and all of those sort of internal and external forces pull the star cluster apart. Uh, so the the story of a star cluster is a little sad, but also it's interesting because it's it's like we can observe this now, but not because it's a new thing that's happening, but because we have the new ability to detect this sad story. Let's turn now to something not nearly so big and ancient as a star cluster, but something still quite big and ancient, the woolly rhino. For a long time, researchers assumed that this adorable Ice Age animal was wiped out by human hunters. Now there's some suggestion that it went extinct when the climate shifted about 14,000 years ago. Danielle, you're a climate scientist, so I'm going to ask you to set this up for us so that people understand the difference between human-caused climate change and climate variation. Yeah, so human-caused climate change is more on the scale of 100 years Whereas long scale variations in climate change can also vary from hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of years. The Pleistocene is a really interesting age. It lasted from about 2 million years ago to about, I want to say, 10,000 years ago. So climate fluctuations on those scales are impacted much more by glacial ice seeds and how they pair with solar variability. So It's interesting here that humans did not actually play a role in decline of this particular megafauna because that is one of the parameters that we think about with megafauna populations, human dispersal, and climate change. This finding is based on a complete set of nuclear DNA from the bone of an animal that is roughly 18,500 years old, and then mitochondrial DNA from a few other specimens that were younger and some even older. Using this DNA, researchers were able to show that the rhinos continued to thrive long after humans arrived in their territory, thus lending more weight to the climate evidence as a cause for the rhino's extinction. But I want to talk about this idea of drawing DNA from very ancient animals and what we can learn about it. Morella, mm-hmm. when you think about this concept, what do you think the possibilities are for what we can learn when we're talking about drawing DNA from animals that have been gone for a very, very, very long time? I was fascinated by this study, not only because it kind of absorbed the humans from being also the reason for this species getting extinct, but I was fascinated by the fact that they only sequenced 14 genomes and they could learn so much from it. As you mentioned, the combination of mitochondrial DNA that is passed on only through the maternal line and then the nuclear DNA that shows the overall variation and the genes that the species had and was expressing. So what what I thought was fascinating, first of all, the immense opportunities that we'll have to study other species, but that the study showed just going from those 14 genomes that the population size when woolly rhinos were at their peak was about 21,000 animals. 
So if you think about it, woolly rhinos sounds huge, right? And 21,000 really isn't a lot of animals. So what I took as most interesting of this study is that small populations are so sensitive to changes. And I think that that probably was part of the reason why this climate change affected the species so much. It was a small population size to start with, and then they were highly specialized, highly adapted to living in this cold, cold area. And all this they could learn just by looking at the genes. There's been some good news, perhaps, on the COVID fighting front, because the first rapid saliva-based screening test has been approved by the FDA, which means that even before we have a vaccine, or even if we don't end up getting a vaccine, there's another tool for helping keep people safe from this virus that some researchers suggest could be exceptionally effective in bringing down transmission rates. This is good news. This study really uh, did give me some good hope for the very reasons you just brought up, Matt, is that we know that a vaccine, if it does come, is going to be still a long time in the coming. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion about the accuracy of these kinds of tests. But I liked the reasoning in the study saying, hey, if you take a test every day for X amount of days, test negative X amount of times, it's going to really increase the ability to say accurately that you are, in fact, negative for the virus. And the cost is really, really low for these tests, which is great. And we don't have to worry about lab capacity, those kinds of things, because they're kind of instant read moments. And I think that could be really helpful for reopening up a lot of the businesses that we're seeing that are having to shutter and being able to have large gatherings again and those kinds of things. So it's giving me hope that there are other ways around making sure we're testing accurately for this virus. I really liked the metaphor that this author gave about how screening tests are designed to work really similarly to x-ray screening in airports. And while that process may be imperfect and it allows some dangerous items through, it is a much faster, more well-equipped way to screen everybody. And to your point as well, for a test that misses 20% of positive cases, the chance that you would get two false negatives in a row then falls to 4%. So as long as you know how to interpret the test, and as long as the test is economically accessible, that would be ideal for getting us out of the pandemic. And I really see the value of screening tests over the costly and slow diagnostic testing that we're currently using. I agree so much, Danielle. I was thinking about the potential that this has for, let's say, having schools open safer. My kids are going back to school part-time and they love being back in school with other kids. But I'm actually, I'm pretty scared because all the measures we have today are more like after the fact measures. So yeah, we are measuring temperature, but a high percentage will be asymptomatic. And if you have a fever that's detectable with the thermometer, you probably have been shedding virus for quite some time. So if we had a way to just do a simple strip test or a cheap test in the morning and have a little better rate of detecting infected people, I think it would be so, so helpful. I think that we really do have to talk about the pressure against a presidential administration that actually doesn't want to increase testing. I'm reading a tweet here written by Donald Trump on June 23rd. It reads, cases are going up in the U.S., 
because we are testing far more than any other country and ever expanding. With smaller testing, we would show fewer cases. So if you have this kind of discourse affecting Americans' perception of the pandemic, then how are you actually supposed to employ widespread rapid testing? That's the part of rapid testing that works is that it's widespread and that everybody can use it. But if one of the most powerful people in the U.S. is not protesting, then how are we supposed to make any significant public policy changes that work on a wide scale to get us out of this? And the important thing here is to recognize, I mean, like the politics impact the way the science gets embraced by a skeptical public. Yeah, I agree. And that's what worries me is that I feel like this is another moment where we are going to be empowering kind of that anti-vaxxer idea where we're going to be saying we don't need this. I mean, it's amazing to me that people are still having discourse that COVID-19 is a hoax and that these are all faked deaths and these are not a real thing happening. And when we're starting at that kind of a baseline and then having that national pressure to not test, that the testing thing just, it doesn't make any sense to me because I am pregnant if I test that I am pregnant or not, right? So I am sick if I get tested or not. And so you'll see hospital rates go up. You'll see these kinds of things happening and just doing the whole put your head in the sand and if I, you know, close my eyes and I can't see it, then it goes away um, is a very, very juvenile way to address this issue um, and something that is very deeply harmful. And I'm hoping that we are able to find leaders who are willing to say, hey, we're going to do this. And I think you've seen some governors step up that way. You've seen business leaders stepping up that way. But I do think that Daniel is right and that this does have to be widespread and we do have to have across the board testing to make something like this work. I think it's also very important that people understand those things. Probably one avenue where we as scientists probably should do a better job is to communicate more. We, we are working at it right now, right? But in general, I think it's so important to communicate science in a way that people understand. So I think it's a little bit on us to counter this misinformation and hopefully administrative change will help. As long as we're on the subject of things that disproportionately affect some communities more than other communities, let's talk about air pollution. A new study shows that while air quality has improved across the United States, the communities that were most grievously harmed by bad air pollution back in the 1980s aren't much better off now than they were back then. So progress overall has been made, but the communities that were left behind 40 years ago, are still just as bad off. This is heartbreaking, but uh, not particularly surprising. I mean, yeah, so this is a classic example of environmental racism. There are numerous studies that draw a correspondence and correlation between poor brown communities and heightened levels of lead, heightened levels of air pollution, being proximity to landfills, increased chances of flooding even. The DAPL is a salient example of environmental racism. The water situation in Flint, Michigan is an example of environmental racism. And this is another confirmation that while our air quality is getting better overall, the question is better for who? Absolutely. And I think that the study also gets to the practice of redlining that has kept 
brown and black communities in the worst places in a city or an environment um, where you are going to be able to afford a home near the refinery or mm-hmm. the factory, as opposed to the richer white community having the houses up on the hill. Um, and so it unfortunately is not surprising to me that this is the case because we have created a housing system in this nation that has definitely disadvantaged people of color for ever since housing has really been around. And that makes sense to me that those less desirable neighborhoods are going to be in areas that have higher pollution rates, which is horrifically unjust and unfair. And really, there needs to be some serious discussion about how to, and not just discussion, but action about how to create better equitable distribution of where homes are and how do you protect air quality and what are you going to do to prevent said refineries and factories from polluting the air in the first place. Right. And I think there needs to be some change that we need to make sure that are in decision-making roles and policy-making roles that they actually lend an ear to those voices, actively listen to people that are impacted most, even if they are not the ones that have most money. This really begs the question of who benefits from scientific advancements, from environmental advancements. There was another study that we all looked at this past week that seems on its face to be sort of a happy, jolly sort of thing. A a recent report in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine showed that playground overhauls in the form of new shiny equipment is like a turbocharger for recess activity for school children. And I read this initially and thought, This is so wonderful. All we have to do is put in new playground equipment and kids, they play more. I mean, it's it's this this wonderful thing. But there's a problem here. And the problem is who gets new playground equipment? I think it's like you said, there is going to be social inequality. One part of the story made me a little optimistic, though, and that was someone describing that unconventional playground supplies actually seem to increase creative play and variety of activities a lot and it doesn't necessarily have to be fried and shiny just things like milk crates and hay bales and pool noodles help kids get more engaged so I I agree with you that having no decent equipment is the worst thing but I think it doesn't necessarily have to be the fried and shiny When my kids were little, sometimes cardboard box and sticks and strings ended up being the nicest toy. I think what I see more of a problem even is that kids nowadays, especially in schools, don't have enough time to actually play. And coming out of this very difficult time in our collective history, this really does need to be a priority for us. I mean, just as much as like helping students recover from the educational inequities that have happened and the stunt in educational development that will happen in the long term, we need to make sure that they get opportunities and learn how to play again. Absolutely. That's one of my big concerns with moving school online, which I understand Mm -hmm. the need to do that right now, but just the increased screen time, right? Now screen time is so much even more normalized than it has been in the past. Um, And I worry that we are stunting our kids' ability to create and to be creative. I mean, that's what's been really fun with this study is seeing, we've been saying, just having a box of things that students can do whatever they want with, and they're being really active and engaged with that and using that creativity. And I worry that 
sedentary behavior is just going to continue to increase and that we're going to find more and more ways to distract ourselves with a screen and not be out and playing and doing the things that kids need to do to really continue to develop physically and mentally. And I also want to include the important point that when you expand a play structure, we didn't explicitly mention including children with disabilities. And I feel like the playground has not been a welcome place for children with disabilities. And what you do when you build a playground intervention and you diversify the playground structures is you can create different areas Mm -hmm. where children can be to where it's not sedentary versus active, right? It's different levels of activity for different levels of ability within children, which do exist. So I feel like it's not just about including the sedentary children. It's about including all children to have varying levels of activity that work for them. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Danielle, let's start with you. I would love to. So I have been getting this question a lot, and now there's science to prove it. So while emissions dropped during the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate impact unfortunately won't last. (laughs) So global greenhouse emissions did fall roughly 10 to 30 percent on average during April 2020. Um, And that was mostly based on estimates around people's movements and that they were driving less and flying less. And people ask, you know, is the earth going to become cooler because of the drop in emissions? Well, the drop in emissions isn't sustained. So in terms of climate change, it's unlikely to take a big bite out of that. However, I would like to underline that this COVID crisis is an opportunity in which we're going to employ large-scale economic solutions and economic recovery plans. And that is the time that is ripe to come up with climate solutions that are equitable, that are enough, that address the scale of climate change. So I think that we can use this COVID crisis as a time for mobilization, even though it's not the reduce in emissions that is going to save us. And Sheena? So I found one that was a little bit more random, looking at researchers who looked at ancient sculptures to look at facial expressions to find universality in our facial expressions. Um, And they were using Mesoamerican sculptures that showed joy and fear and pain. Um, And it was really interesting to see that those translated, at least in the Western world, similarly Folks were shown without any context of the full sculpture. They were shown just the face and they were able to identify what emotion was being portrayed. And I know that that's not, in fact, universal because there are other cultures that interpret facial expressions differently from Western cultures. But it was just, I love moments that you can see universality among humanity um, that kind of transcends um, and looking at facial expressions, probably something that was genetically structured for us and that we've just used evolutionarily for a very long time. And I love those moments that show that we are, in fact, more similar than we are dissimilar. And I thought that was just a really novel approach to look at these ancient sculptures to see these facial expressions. So that was kind of a fun thing. And finally, Marilla. So I found one study that resonated a lot with me, and the title was so Nordic, 
post diversity increases in human dominated ecosystems. So what does it mean? It really means the more we as humans urbanize and dominate the areas around us, the more we will foster animal species to thrive that are actually hosts for viruses and other diseases that will make us sick. I thought it was fascinating that, especially in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, that it showed so clearly how everything is really tightly connected and intertwined. Yeah, epidemics have been around for a long time, but we are making it worse because how we dominate our ecosystems and destroy complex ecosystems in rainforests, we will just replace those ecosystems with a little more urbanized, simpler systems. And in those urban ecosystems, we have species that thrive like rodents or uh, sparrows or bats. And those species are just full of zoonotic diseases or zoonotic germs that will make us sick in the long run. So I think in, in line with a lot of the studies that we talked about, we will need to find a more sustainable way to live on our planet without destroying everything. Because not only because it's bad for our environment, it is actually directly causing things like the COVID pandemic. That's Marilla Meyerfika. Marilla, it was so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure as always. And Danielle Lemon, thank you. Thank you. Follow me at ilemon on Twitter if you want to know more. <laughs> Sheena McFarland, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>